If we can get that first slide uh, from my deck, there's this man right here. Uh, for those of you that might not know him, this is St. Lawrence. Now, in Catholicism, he is the patron saint of comedians and cooks. Now, some of you might not know who a patron saint is. In Catholicism, it is the saints that people pray to and that they would advocate on their behalf in the presence of God. And oftentimes, you know, many different professions will have, you know, lawyers, travelers, cooks, comedians, they will have patron saints that they will pray to. Now, you might be wondering, how does St. Lawrence, how did he become the patron saint of two such different professions? What, how, how do those two get clumped together under St. Lawrence? And it's actually because of his last words that he said. And in order to understand the context, i got to tell you about his last days. You see, he was alive in the 3rd century A.D., so, you know, 200-something A.D. Christianity was still not the official religion of Rome, and it was facing heavy persecutions. And St. Lawrence was actually a deacon in Rome under the, bishop, under the, under the pope, actually, of Rome. And his boss, the Pope, he was persecuted for the faith, and he was actually executed for Christ. The Roman government executed him, and at that time, Rome had a law. They said, whenever we execute someone, it's a very convenient law, uh, we get to take all your possessions. We get to take all of your money, right? Wow, what a, what a convenient law, right? So anyway, they execute the, the, you know, the, the Pope, and they said, well, he's over the whole church, so we have to take all of the church's wealth, all of the church's donations. So the prefect of Rome, kind of think governor of Rome, orders St. Lawrence, who is kind of the treasurer of the Roman church, he says, hey, bring all the wealth that you have. And so St. Lawrence was advised to ask for three days. So he asks for three days. He gets granted three days. And then St. Lawrence goes and he gives away all the money, all the treasure, all the wealth that the church has. Just goes to all the blind men, the beggars, the, the lame people, and he just starts giving it away to everyone. And he gives it all away. And at the end of three days, St. Lawrence comes and stands before the prefect of Rome and he's got a small delegation, small group of people with him. And he stands before him, and the governor says, all right, turn over, you know, the wealth of the church. And uh, he turns around, and he looks, and he points to the blind people, the lame men, the beggars that came with him, the cripples. And he says, this, my governor, this is the wealth of the church. These souls, they are precious both in the eyes of God and the eyes of of the church. Uh, well, let's just say that the governor of Rome did not uh, think that was very funny. He did not appreciate Lawrence's uh, humor. So according to church tradition, he decided to do something very horrible. He decided to make a fire, to put an iron grill. And if we can go to the next slide, he actually put Lawrence on the grill. And Lawrence died for Christ in this way. And according to church tradition, his last words as he was dying, he turned over to, I'm presuming his executioner, 
he looked over at him and he said, turn me over, I'm done on this side, right? It's, it's crazy, right, to think that someone can be like this in these last moments. But because of that, he became the patron saint of comedians and cooks. But why do I bring this up? Last words. It's a person's last words, right? If you, if, if you were to know right now that you were to die in five minutes, in five minutes, if you were to go, what would be your last words? Just think about it. What would you say? To whom would you say it? Death has a way of kind of cutting through the fluff, does it not? Right? When you know that you're going to die, it just, it just, all the fluff flies away and all that is left is the core, the most important part. And people's last words, they're important. We pay a special attention to their last words. We, we commit them to memory because usually people in these moments are saying what is most important, what is most valuable, what is most precious to their souls. And it is also very revealing on what is going on inside of a person, right? These are their last words. They're done. They're leaving after this. Today, we will be looking at John 19. And here in John 19, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, John records three sayings of Jesus as his last words. They are unique to the gospel of John. No other gospel captures these three phrases, but for some reason the Holy Spirit prompted John to record these three specific sayings. And we're going to be looking at just five verses today from John 19. So if you can, open up your Bible and we will go through that together. John 19, starting with verse 26. The first phrase if we can go to the next slide, John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother, he's already on the cross, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Church, I'm blown away by Jesus Christ. Just, just think about this for a second. Here he is crucified. He's got literal nails going through his hands, through his feet. He is going through the most intense physical suffering, and not just physical suffering, emotional suffering. And in the midst of all of this, I wouldn't even be able to think in that moment, right? And in the midst of all this suffering, he is taking care of his mother. In my mind, I don't understand how it's possible to even think about anything else other than the pain you are going through. If anybody had a legitimate excuse to not care about people at that moment, it was Jesus Christ. Like, we would all say, Jesus, forget about me, forget about everyone else. You're the one in pain. And yet, he cared. And physical pain especially because it really, it's centered on our body, right? So all of our attention turns from the outside world. You know, when you're in pain, you're not looking around, you know, you're not observing people. All you're thinking about is the physical pain you're going through. And yet Jesus 
focused on others. I can't even have a headache, right, without me thinking all about me when I have my headache, right? I I completely forget about other people and caring about other people. I'm just being honest. My fuse gets like this short, just just impossible, like invisible, right? Because all I can think about is how do I stop my headache? And yet Jesus, instead of complaining, Instead of asking even other people for pity, which we feel like a person does deserve pity in that moment, he is actively caring for other people. I just, I want us to just for a second, just try to wrap your mind around what, how does a person need to be on the inside in order to be able to say these kind of things in a moment like this? Like, what kind of construction of a soul do you need to have to be able to actually utter those words and mean them in your most painful moments? And yet, did you know that Jesus, he wasn't just suffering and caring for other people. He was actually leaving an example for us. Uh Uh-oh, right? 1 Peter 2.20. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So doing good and suffering for doing the good is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for to this you have been called. You've been called to righteous suffering. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus did not just suffer. He suffered for doing good, right? It's one thing to suffer for your own mistake. Like, I should have picked up the rake in the yard, and then I stepped on it, and it hit me in the face, right? That's your mistake, right? Maybe it's you're suffering for your own sin. It's a whole other thing to suffer for something randomly, right? No fault of your own. Some kind of illness, right, that comes upon you. It's a whole new level to suffer for doing good, specifically for doing good. And according to 1 Peter 2.21, Jesus leaves us an example so that we might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, meaning when he was spoken evil of, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And the question is, how? How was Jesus capable of enduring such suffering and not responding with with a sinful reaction? Is it possible to not sin like that with our mouths when we are suffering? How is it possible to not complain in our suffering, to threaten, to try to evoke self-pity? The answer lies in verse 23 over here, church. Read with me, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's that last phrase right here. Trusting in God. 
Church, this is the key, the crux, right? Trusting in God is the only way that we will ever be able to endure suffering the way that Jesus did. Trusting in God is the only way to get through suffering in a way that honors God. And that's actually the example he laid down for us, right? This is not Jesus doing superhero stuff, right? That we look at and we admire and we say, wow, I'll never be like that. No, no, no. The word of God clearly says that this is actually an example. So an example, which means we have to imitate his example, amen? And he wasn't just using some superhuman ability or some superhuman strength. No, he endured the suffering by trusting God. And that is something that all of us are capable of. Amen, church? All of us are capable of trusting God in whatever circumstances we have, right? And, and it's very interesting because it doesn't say he just trusted God. It says he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Very interesting. Why, why, why does Peter tack on this other phrase, to him who judges justly? Why, how is that relevant to Jesus and suffering righteously? He, the reason why it's relevant is because Jesus was entrusting himself to him who was keeping track of all the injustice that was being done to him. I'll explain why that's important. For us as Christians, for those of us who have made a peace with God, God's justice is no longer terrifying. God's justice is a joy. God's justice is a relief. It's a comfort. It's something, it's a refuge. It's something we come to and cling to. Why? Because we have a Father who is perfect and all-knowing. He is the one who keeps perfect track of all of our suffering. All suffering. Psalm 56, verse 8. David praying to God in an intimate prayer. He says, you have kept count of my tossings, meaning his restless nights. Every time I flip over on my bed, you have kept track of all that. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Church, God has an exact count of every single tear that every single one of us has ever shed. God keeps track of all that because we are so precious in his eyes. He loves us. He keeps track of every tossing and turning, every moment of pain that we have ever felt. He keeps track of all of that. He has an exact measurement of our suffering. And this is important because in Christ, God no longer counts any of our sins against us, yes, but he still tracks our suffering. And as the good and perfect judge who will bring everything into perfect balance one day. Every single piece of suffering that we suffer here on earth will be balanced in the end. He is the judge who judges justly, right? God is the one who in proper portion will recompense us for all the suffering that we endure here on earth. So, if someone cheats you, right, somehow they lie to you, they do something, they cheat you, and you suffer some kind of loss, a good judge in court, what will they do? They will make sure that you get recompensed, whatever it is that you lost, plus not just what you lost, but also with what? With 
interest, right? Because you could, have, you could have been using that elsewhere. That's what a good judge will do. He will give you back plus more with interest because that's only fair. Well, church, God's interest as the good judge, it's not, his interest rate is not some silly 8% like it is today here in America. God's interest is a hundredfold. That's what he promises us. Jesus trusted in the God who judges justly, and we are called to do the same. There's no other way we can correctly handle suffering. Church, I want you to hear this. It's in, to be able to endure suffering in a God-honoring way is not just willpower. It's not. It's not just mm, try harder. It's not just do better, be a bigger person. It's I am trusting God who keeps count of all my tears. He's got them all in a bottle. He keeps track of all my tossings. I am trusting him, and one day he will bring everything in my life back into equilibrium and balance. That is the secret to righteous suffering. That is the secret to go through all suffering in a God-honoring way. But notice, Jesus didn't just stop at not sinning. He was caring for other people. Presumably, his earthly father, Joseph, was probably already dead at that time. And now Jesus is leaving, and he's setting things in order so that his mother can still be taken care of. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, meaning think this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Secret is in Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or laid hold of, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more important than yourself. How do we do that? Having a mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. Think this way which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, it's a parallel passage where Jesus leaves an example for us. Jesus lays down an example of sacrifice and righteous suffering and service in the midst of his greatest suffering. He was caring for others. And I'm certain that if you're sitting here and you're taking this seriously and you're thinking about it, I'm certain there are some of you here that are overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed when I was writing this message. I was overwhelmed at the thought of me being like Jesus, the thought of me getting crucified and then having to care about other people. I was like, I can't do that, God. I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm too selfish. I, 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 can, I can't focus on other people when I'm in pain. It, it's overwhelming. But don't forget that the secret to being able to do this is not willpower. The secret is trusting God, moment by moment, trusting in Him. God, help me. God, help me. I trust you. You're my only hope. Get me through this, please. Jesus did it by trusting in God, and we can't do it any other way. And if we trust in God, 
moment by moment, God will provide us the strength that we need moment by moment. And God will not send us to a cross tomorrow. He won't. He knows, God knows what we can handle. And he promises in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he will never give us a trial that we cannot handle, right? There's a promise from God. We can trust in that. So we can trust that whatever trials come to us, whatever suffering is coming upon us, God deemed that we are fit to be able to handle this trial by trusting in him. So to the very end, he was focused on others. And in fact, if we can go to the next slide, we see that Jesus never had any self-pity ever. This is the last point on specifically this first phrase. Deep down inside, I'm sure all of us will agree that self-pity is probably wrong, right? But rarely do we have a logical way of explaining why self-pity is wrong, right? And self-pity is very addicting, right? It feels good. You see, it's one thing to say when you're going through pain to say, I'm in pain, right? That is not self-pity. That's just, you're just stating a fact. It's a whole nother thing to say, oh, poor me. Look at the pain I'm going through. Poor me. It's a complete, those are two different things. Because self-pity, the root of it is actually us complaining against God. Now, we might never think of it that way. We might never, you know, feel that that's what we're actually doing. We might never uh, realize it or say it that way. But think about this. God is sovereign over all of our circumstances. Amen, church? We hold fast to that. We hold fast that God is sovereign over everything. And he is in charge of everything. And so when we, believing that he is in charge of everything, when we say, poor me, we are blaming someone. We're not saying who, right? You know, they say, I'm not pointing any fingers, but someone Someone who wronged us. Someone who sits over all of these circumstances. And at the end of that day, we know it's God. I remember when I was 14, uh, I, only, I only knew one, one of my grandpas. The other one passed away before I was even born. And I was very close with my grandpa. Uh, he was a chemist. I loved doing chemistry experiments with him. You know, we had a lot of fun time. And he suddenly passed away when I was 14. And it was just, just a shock. It just swept me off my feet. Like, I, I never had a death, a close death before. And he passed away, and it was sudden. It was a stroke. No one's seen it coming. It just happened, boom. And I remember him passing away, and, and I remember I was just so sad. I was so confused. I was so lost. I, I went up into my room. I, I was on my bed. I was laying, and I was crying, and I was, all I could say was, why did this have to happen? Why did this have to happen? Why did this have to happen? And I'm guessing my mom heard me, and she walks into my room, and this is her dad that just passed away. And she walks in, and she says, who are you blaming right now? And I fell silent. Because I instantly knew what she was referring to, who she was referring to. It was God. 
I, was, I, didn't, I wasn't praying that. I wasn't even pointing anything to heaven at that moment. But I knew that what I was actually doing, I was actually blaming God. Because he's the one that took my grandfather at the right time. You see, that's the same exact thing we do when we have self-pity. Self-pity is the feeling that we have been treated unjustly. Catch that keyword? Unfairly. Unjustly. Unfairly. Right? That something happened, some sort of injustice happened to me, therefore poor me, and now I want to garner self-pity from people. It's like a passive form of anger, right? Anger is very active against some sort of injustice. How could this injustice happen? Self-pity is the passive version of feeling like you were wronged unjustly. But that passive feeling of injustice is ultimately blaming God, even if we never directly blame Him. So in the moment of greatest suffering... Jesus was not only not full of self-pity, but he was caring for others. And the only way that's possible is by trusting him who judges justly. Amen, church? So that's his first phrase. That's the first words. We're going to go through the other ones faster. The second one, he says, I thirst. I thirst. As he's hanging on the cross. What I never realized before preparing this message was that the gospel of John is the only gospel that records Jesus saying that he will satisfy the thirst of people. Did you ever realize that? You know, we say, whoever's thirsty, let him come to me. We hear all these passages, right? And we think they're all over the gospels. Well, no, it's actually the, only the gospel of John captures this idea of coming to Jesus and never thirsting. Only the gospel of John. John 4, we read when Jesus was sitting with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And they start talking about living water and, you know, whoever comes to me, I will give him the water and he will never thirst again. John 6, 35, Jesus says to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John seven thirty seven, and on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus is this image of this spring, this wellspring of eternal life, this satisfaction that we can come to him and be satisfied. And John, oftentimes, he looks at this symbolism that is happening around Jesus, and he's interpreting it spiritually, and these verses are no exception. He's the only gospel that talks about Jesus satisfying our thirst, and now Jesus is saying, I thirst. Well, if we look at the Old Testament, God is often the one that people thirst for in the Old Testament. Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
right? God is the one that satisfies us. And then Jeremiah 2.13, this is when people sin and fall away from the one, the fountain of eternal life. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have made for themselves cisterns or kind of underground containers for holding water for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And here we see that people in Jeremiah, they were thirsty because of their sin. Because they have forsaken God. They have left God through their sin. They have forsaken the fountain of living water, and now they are thirsty. And John, talking about the God who is the fountain of living water, who took on human flesh, has come and lived with us and offered his, his eternal water freely to all of us. John, recording all that now at the cross, at the moment of his greatest suffering, records that same fountain of eternal water saying, I thirst. It's very symbolic. Matthew 27, 46, John doesn't capture this. Matthew does. He says, in that, around that time, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Sounds familiar, huh? It's Jeremiah 23, right? A cross-reference to that. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, that's the Father, made him, Jesus, who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. We forsake God. We become thirsty. On the cross, the Father forsake, had forsaken Jesus he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange, church. This is the gospel. That the fountain of eternal life, the one who had life in himself, became thirsty on our behalf. He was forsaken by God on our behalf. The one who did nothing ever wrong, the one who never disobeyed the Father, who never strayed from the fountain of living water, he was cut off from that mountain, that fountain, because of my sin, because of your sin. Jesus experienced that thirst for all of us so that we would never have to experience it ever again. This is the good news. There's a reason why hell is an image of eternal fire. Because there can be no water in fire, right? Nothing. Hell is not an image of kind of a bottomless ocean where you're constantly drowning and sinking. No, hell is an image of fire, and it says it is away from the presence of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 away from the presence of the fountain of living water. That's what hell is. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, this is the swap, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He, our Lord Jesus, he suffered for each and every single one of us, church. He suffered for us that he might bring us to God. To God, the fountain of living waters, the fountain of eternal satisfaction. Friend, 
if you are still seeking in your life, going from, from cistern to cistern, and you just can't seem to be satisfied, and it seems to satisfy at first, but, it, but ultimately it doesn't. If you're just seeking greener pastures on the other side, right? The grass is always greener, thinking this next time, oh, it's going to be different. This next time, it'll be really good. I want to spare you all of the trouble. It's not. It won't. You will not find true, lasting satisfaction here on earth apart from being connected to the living God who is the fountain of living waters. Apart from Jesus, you can't. Jesus experienced that infinite thirst, the depth of the separation from God on your behalf, on my behalf, the infinite thirst so that we would not have to, so that we can be brought back to him. I know this is a heavy message, but just like the, the night is darkest right before it starts getting brighter, Christ's suffering was at its peak right before his victory. And this is where we read about that, his cry of victory in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This phrase, it is finished, is just one word in Greek. And in the gospel of John, this, this root word is used to describe him accomplishing the works of God. John 17, 4, just two chapters before, Jesus praying to the Father says, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished, same Greek root word as it is finished, the work that you gave me to do. John 5, 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, same Greek root word, the very works that I am doing. So when Jesus says it is finished, in a sense he's saying, I have accomplished all that needed to be accomplished. It's, it's now done. The mission that the Father gave me on earth, I'm, I'm done. I've revealed the Father to the world. I have taken away the sin of the world, and I have opened up a path of salvation to all who believe in me, and now I am done, and I'm leaving. It's beautiful. And this has, church, this has massive application for all of us, very personal application. Because if God's work, if Christ's work is finished, then that means I cannot add to his work with my own work, right? This means that my works are no longer a path to salvation. They are a result of my salvation, right? Christ's work is the root of my salvation, and my work is merely the fruit of the salvation that Christ has performed in me. Ephesians 2.8, a beautiful passage. If we can go to the next slide, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by faith, not by works. Good works are still very much so in the picture, church. We are saved by Christ so that we could do the good works, but not the other way around. 
Don't put the cart in front of the horse. The cart has to go behind the horse, right? The, the, the faith, the grace is the horse, and it's in front. The root of the tree is what gives the tree life, and the fruits are the results of having good roots. And a tree cannot have fruits without good roots. And a healthy tree with healthy roots will always bear fruits. So church, friend, brother, sister, whenever we feel condemned for the actual sin that I've done, by my sins, maybe my mistakes, my shortcomings, my inadequacies, my oversight, we must rest in the finished work of Jesus. That on the cross, he bore, he carried all of my sin. And he paid for all of it, 100%, there on the cross. He was already forsaken by God so that we would never have to be forsaken. That's why Paul has so much confidence when he writes in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, right? You mean he's forgiven me all of my sins? Yes, all of them, completely. Not just the ones before the last time that I fell to my lowest. Yes, all of them, even when you fell to your lowest. He's covered it all. He's finished it all, and he's he said it as a testament to all of us. It is all finished. There is no condemnation in Christ. Apart from him, all we find is condemnation. Christian author Ed Welch, in his book on addictions, has this amazing, powerful line. He says, For every one look at our sin, and we should, because that's what the Bible calls us to do. For every one look at our sin, we should take ten looks to Christ. For every one look, church, take ten at Jesus Christ. As I call the band up, I want to finish this message with the sermon, this message with the story of Hiro Onodam. He was a Japanese soldier during World War II. And because of his uh, just intelligence, he was singled out very quickly, and they, they made him kind of an intelligence officer. And his orders were clear. He got sent to an island and says, hey, stop all enemy attacks on the island. Destroy the air sh- airstrip that you arrived on, right? This is like this your last mission. Never surrender or just take your own life. That's it. Those are your only options. And so he's on this island. He had a squad, and he's engaging in guerrilla warfare, right? And then in 1945, when Japan surrendered, Onoda thought it was a trick. And so he continued to live by that old command, right? And, you know, the government, what they started doing, informing, because they knew they had these soldiers operating all throughout the jungles and on the islands, they started dropping leaflets everywhere, right? Saying, hey, the war's over. Come out. You're done. You don't need to fight anymore. That's it. There's peace. When he read that, he didn't believe it. 
He thought, oh, this is a trick. The enemy is trying to get me to surrender. So together, Onadah, with three other soldiers, he continued to fight guerrilla warfare. Not for two more weeks, not for a month, not for a year, for a long time. Five years after the war ended, one of the soldiers surrendered. In 1954, that's nine years, another of the soldiers was killed by island police officers. And his final buddy, the one he was left with, was shot and killed by the local police in 1972. For 29 years, Onadah stayed in the jungle, hiding underground caves. He spent his time pointlessly gathering intelligence on enemy movements. And his final two years, he was all by himself. Long story short, they were finally able to convince him that the war is actually over. But the year was 1974. 29 years later, he spent living in the jungle after World War II was over, after this whole world started to move on and thrive and flourish. We can admire his character, his self-will, but man, that is a wasted life. He was living in some jungle. Literally, he was killing innocent people. They killed many people. Getting killed fighting a war that no longer existed. 29 years of living underground, in caves, malnourished, gathering intelligence. He could have brought so much more good to this world instead of fighting a war that did not exist. He could have channeled his discipline to serve the world instead. Church, it's finished. Christ has paid it all and yet so many of us sitting here, we, we get the leaflet, right, from the plane. And it tells us that my sin, it's, it's done. It's, it's finished, right? It's been dealt with. And we read it and we say, I don't believe it. That's a trick. I don't know what it is, but it's a trick. We think that we still need to undo our own guilt somehow with our own rituals, with our own rules and laws and, you know, helping God along. Meeting God halfway. No. Jesus said it is finished and there is nothing left for us to add to his work. So church, I urge you, believe the news. Trust the news. Live by those good news. There's no reason for us to hide in the caves, malnourished in the wilderness, eating scraps. Come out, feast with Jesus and rest in his victory. Let's stand and have a minute of response time as we ponder upon the great work of Christ as he finished it there on the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We worship you. We make much of you. Thank you for winning that war. Thank you for finishing it. Thank you for experiencing that eternal thirst that we no longer need to experience. I pray for anyone who has not yet come to know you, that they would come to you and they would experience 
your life-giving, soul-satisfying presence. And for those of us that have come to know you, I pray we would continue to trust you to him who judges justly and to rest in your precious, finished work. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.